Thank you, John. Let me add my welcome to John's. My name's uh, Andy. I'm one of the elders in the church involved in the church plant in Charleston, if you don't know who I am. We're going to be starting a new series tonight looking through the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Now, when it comes to books of the Bible, there are some books that are easier to understand than others. And Ezekiel is one of these books that many people struggle with. It's long, it's repetitive, and at times it's very weird. Um, And I'm hoping, though, that as we spend these evenings over the next 10 weeks looking through the book of Ezekiel, you'll see how surprisingly simple it is and how profoundly relevant it is to our situation um, today in Scotland. So here's what I want to do. Uh, In order to really understand this book, we need to know the historical background to it. Uh, You can read through it in 2 Kings, uh, specifically 2 Kings chapter 25. Um, And so what I want to do just now is just give a, a brief kind of summary of the historical background to Ezekiel, and then we'll dive in to the first chapter. Ezekiel was written almost 600 years before Jesus. And at this time, God's people were confined to a single nation, the nation of Israel. Um, This was the nation that was given promises by God, promises that, that from them would come a king who would establish the throne of God forever, promises that that they would be used to bless all the nations of the world. This nation was God's chosen nation. These were God's chosen people. And the thing that marked Israel out as unique from every other civilization in the world was a building that was situated in her capital city of Jerusalem. It was the temple. What was so special about the temple? Well, it was in the temple that the glory of God was said to reside. Now, that's really important to understand in Ezekiel, that the glory of God, that the movement of God's glory is what the book of Ezekiel is all about. So what do we mean then when we speak of God's glory? That's one of these terms that we use, but it's quite hard to define. Well, God's glory is the visible manifestation of his character. God's glory, um, glory in Hebrew literally translates as weighty or significant. So God's glory is this kind of, this, this representation of his importance. It's his special revelation. And it was always synonymous for an ancient Israelite with his presence, with his intimate care. And for an ancient Israelite, there was only one place where the glory of God resided, in the temple in Jerusalem. That was the one connecting point between God and the world. That's where his glory was. Now, here's the problem when we come to Ezekiel. You see, for hundreds of years, Israel had chosen to turn their back on God's law and to ignore God's commands. I mean, they really did some of the most horrendous things you could think of. And we'll see some of them as we look through the book of Ezekiel. They rebelled against God and they ignored God. And God warned them that if they kept doing this, he was going to leave them. His glory was going to leave the temple. He would walk out on his own people, but they didn't believe it. 
And so what happened was God destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in 592 BC, God sent the mighty Babylonian empire to the gates of Jerusalem. And the Babylonians did something to Jerusalem that no army had ever done before. They invaded the city and they took most of the residents off into exile to Babylon. There you go, that's four years animation degree right there. They took most of the the exiles off into Babylon. Now what's important to understand is that there was still a group left in Jerusalem at this time. And almost everyone, the exiles and, and those that were left behind in Jerusalem, almost all of them believed that God would not destroy Jerusalem. That, that as long as Jerusalem had, was still standing, as long as the temple was still standing, then there was still hope for his people because the Babylonians didn't destroy the temple. And so they thought, well, it's okay. Those who are off in exile, they're the ones that are under God's judgment. But we who've been left behind in Jerusalem, we're okay, we're safe. The temple's still standing, the city's still here, and everything's going to be fine. But God chooses Ezekiel to speak a message of judgment, really, upon the city of Jerusalem. You see, Ezekiel was one of those that was carted off to Babylon. And God speaks through Ezekiel and says to Ezekiel, I want you to tell all those exiles in Babylon, don't put your hope in that city, that city that has rebelled against me. Don't put your hope in that temple. I'm going to walk out and I'm going to completely destroy everything that is in Jerusalem. For five years, that was Ezekiel's message. And then it happened in 586 BC. The Babylonians returned. And this time they didn't take off any prisoners, but they destroyed the whole city and they eradicated everyone who was left behind. And so the message of Ezekiel is getting us to see why this happened. And then after this event, Ezekiel's message suddenly changes completely and God gives a message of hope to the exiles in Babylon. Message of a a new covenant of how God's going to fix all that these people had ruined by their sin. And so as we come to the uh, latter third of the book of Ezekiel, we'll see some of the most amazing promises given in the Bible, promises that were ultimately fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus. So as we begin this series, here's the, the big thing I hope that we will get from studying Ezekiel. A greater knowledge of God. Why did God do this? Why did this happen? What hope is there? Well, I hope in answering all these questions, we will get a greater knowledge of God. And I think that's what Ezekiel would want us to get. There is one phrase that is used time and time again throughout the book of Ezekiel, and it's this. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Do you know that one of the big problems with Israel at this time was that they had lost sight of the greatness of God? They had lost sight of his goodness, of his mercy, of his power, of his judgment, of his majesty. They had diminished God's glory by trying to tame him and compartmentalize him and place him alongside the gods of other nations. And I fear to a degree that there is a danger of us doing the same thing in the church today. The author David Wells 
had this to say about the modern Western church, and it's a, it's a bit of a generalization, but there is some truth in it. He says this, our problem is that God rests too inconsequentially upon his church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy, and his Christ is too common. We need to be humbled by the wild, untamable God of Ezekiel. This book's really going to stretch our knowledge of God and therefore, by implication, our knowledge of Christ and his gospel. And that will at times be very difficult. That will at times be amazing. And one thing's for certain, it will always be humbling. And what better way then to humble us before this great God with this amazing vision that Ezekiel sees as he sits by the rivers of Babylon in chapter 1. So let's turn there now, if you have a Bible, um, page 830. Remember, Ezekiel is a prisoner. He has been taken off. He undoubtedly would have felt abandoned by God, along with his fellow exiles. And this is what happened to him as he sits by the rivers of Babylon. Ezekiel chapter 1. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, when I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, son of Butsi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man. On the right side, each had the face of a lion. On the left side, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such was their faces. Their wings were spread out upwards, Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome. And all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. When the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go. And the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. 
When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. When the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one towards the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of the rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse, over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. High above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. He said to me, son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. He said, son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. Well, well, let me pray and we'll look at this passage together. Father, we pray that we would see the greatness of the glory of the Lord Father, a greatness that was not diminished but magnified and clarified through Jesus. Help us to see it. Help us to not tame you or confine you or limit you, but to be stretched in in awe of who you are. May we marvel at your majesty. May we submit to your authority. May we be amazed at your power. Stretch our knowledge of your greatness this evening, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight as we look at Ezekiel's opening vision, I know there's stuff in there that's very weird and confusing. I hope that um, as we walk through it, it won't be so strange. We're going to see uh, this vision of the glorious God, and then we're going to close by looking at the voice of the glorious God. 
But as we begin, I want us to realize something very important. We are not Ezekiel. So, so this, is, this is not normal. Ezekiel had a unique commission at a very unique time to go and speak God's word to his people. He was a prophet, and we don't have prophets today. We can read from them. We can learn from them. But that is not primarily how God has spoken to us today. And I wanted those verses from the book of Hebrews that, that David read to us to stand over this text In the past, in many ways, like what we just read there, God spoke through the prophets. But for us today, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, who is the radiance of his glory. And therefore, what we see in this vision as we study it, should be made clearer through what we know of Christ. Now, there's loads of complex imagery going on here, uh, lots of amazing things happening. It's easy to get lost in the detail. But I want you to step back, and I want us to notice two things about this vision that Ezekiel sees in Babylon. Firstly, notice that there is a kind of vagueness to what Ezekiel's trying to describe. So, you know, and as he goes on, it gets vaguer and vaguer. He uses the word like a lot. It was kind of like this. It was kind of like that. It had the appearance of this. In fact, look at verse 28. This is describing exactly what he saw. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So what did Ezekiel see? It wasn't the full-blown glory of the Lord. It wasn't the the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It was an appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. In other words, Ezekiel saw something that was so great that he couldn't even see it in its fullness. He's trying to describe for us something that's extremely hard to describe with the limitations of human language. And so this vision, as in all the visions in Ezekiel, uh, is kind of a stylized representation of reality. Second thing to notice about this vision, if we step back from the vision as a whole, is that it's actually really describing one thing. And this is what Ezekiel's seen. It's God riding on his heavenly chariot. That's what the vision is as a whole. God upon his heavenly chariot. So Ezekiel starts by at the bottom of the chariot, as it were, and gradually starts looking up. He sees at the base of this chariot four living creatures. Then he sees next to them wheels. Then he looks up and he sees an expanse that they're holding. Then he looks up and he sees a throne on the expanse. And then he looks up and he sees a figure on the throne and he can't really see any higher than this figure's waist because the light is just brilliant. This is a picture of God and his chariot. In other words, this is a picture of God arrayed for war. That's the likeness of his glory. And in this vision of God's glory, I think we'll see three particular attributes of God that Israel had forgotten in her rebellious state and in her sin. Three attributes that remind us of his greatness. What are they? The first thing we see is God's supreme authority. That's what this vision conveys. It conveys God's supreme authority. So Ezekiel's sitting there by the banks of the the Kibar River, and then he sees this immense cloud. In the center of this cloud, there's fire. 
And in the fire, there are these four living creatures. And the description of these creatures is vivid, isn't it? They have four wings spread out, touching one another. They have four faces. Just look at verse 10. Their faces look like this. Each of the four had the face of a man. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. And on the left side, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. What does this mean? Well, humanity back in Genesis was seen as the the pinnacle of God's creation. The lion is seen as the kind of highest order of wild animals. The ox is seen as the highest order of domestic animals. The, The eagle is the most noblest and highest order of the birds. And so Ezekiel is trying to describe that what he saw in in these creatures were those who embodied the highest attributes of all living creation, the most noble and beautiful and powerful beings in creation. We know that from later on in Ezekiel, these are what um, the Bible calls cherubim, angelic beings that are there to serve God. So you need to get out of your heads uh, the kind of idea of a cherub being a little baby in a nappy. This is what cherubim look like. And it kind of changes the definition of that if you ever call your wee one a little cherub because you're calling them a little four-faced creature that shoots bolts of lightning and fire out of them. This is the cherubim. These great creatures these great and awesome, terrifying creatures. And what's their purpose? Well, they're kind of like the secret service is to the president. They are like the guardians of God's glory, like God's heavenly bodyguard who are there to serve and protect God. Here we see these creatures, these great noble creatures in all creation. And what are they doing here? What's their job? They're they are there to serve and to hold up the great sapphire throne that is described in verse 26, the throne of the creator. These creatures go where the spirit of God tells them to go and they serve the king of kings. And so here is God seated on his throne above the cherubim, the great I am, And how is he depicted as this wonderful, divine warrior king riding on his heavenly chariot? This is the God of the Bible. This is who Israel had rebelled against and who Israel had lost sight of. They had placed this awesome creator as equal to creation and they lost sight of the supreme authority, the unique authority of the God who is sovereign over all creation. The Israelites had no fear or reverence before God. They had forgotten that this is the God who is a terrifying warrior king. Let me ask you, is that how you view God? Do you know that the term warrior is used frequently throughout the Bible as a description of who God is? And, and, and so therefore, if we're to, to get our understanding of him right, that needs to be in our vocabulary 
And that's who Jesus is. You know, it's amazing to think that, that this great, glorious God that Ezekiel sees here, 600 years later, came to earth as a human being. Jesus is God in the flesh, the King of kings, one who was so approachable and kind that the children would run to play with him, but one who was so terrifying in his majesty that the demons and all the forces of darkness would cower before him and beg for mercy. And what does the Bible tell us Jesus will be like at the end of time? Not the humble Galilean peasant, but the king who will come back to judge the world. And as Jesus himself tells us in Mark thirteen twenty nine, you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. This is who God is. And do you know, this vision of God's glory, of God's authority as this great warrior king, do you know, it carries with it a kind of ominous note for Israel, which we'll see next week. You see, God's arrayed for war, but who's he come to war against? It's not the Babylonians. He's come to war against his own apostate people, those who turned, his back, turned their backs on his words. And there is a warning in this vision not to turn away or demean this king. But there was also a great note of comfort in this vision for Ezekiel and the exiles and those who felt abandoned by God in Babylon. And the comfort is that God's on his throne. That all that's happened to him has happened because he ordained it. He is the king. He is the one who is on his throne. And the great comfort to, to God's people is that this great warrior, if he is not fighting against you, fights for you. He fights for us right up to the point that he was willing to be crucified and punished for our sins. He will fight for our salvation. This is the king. And we need to start thinking bigger about who Jesus is. I feel we maybe lose sight sometimes of the, the greatness of Jesus. And one of the ways we do that, we need to have a kind of air of mystery about him. Not, not to try and compartmentalize him and have him scrutinized and worked out. Not, not to view him as if he's just me times a million. This is how we know that we've done that. This is what Israel did. A God who is small and powerless is a God that you can fully understand and who will always affirm all the choices you make in life and never challenge you. Someone who's kind of more like an assistant than a king. And that's not the king who rides on the cherubim. You need to be humbled by his glory. Israel needed to be humbled by this vision. He is in charge. We need to let him rule every area of our lives. He does not tell us what he does or why he does it all the time, but we need to give room for God to be God. And that's so liberating. Because when he's not against you, he is for you. And you're in the safest hands possible when you're in the hands of this great king. Here's the second thing that this vision tells us about God's characteristics that were being lost um, through Israel's sin. His sovereign mobility. Now, this sounds weird, but there's a lot in this vision that's devoted to movement. There's, there's loads going on, isn't it? Lots of flashing and um, darting to, 
to and forth. And, you know, the living creatures at the base of the chariot, they're, they're constantly moving. They're dictated by the Spirit of God. They go in four directions, north, south, east, and west. Verse 14, the creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. And next to the creatures are, are these huge wheels that are great and awesome that move the, the chariot of God's glory. Verse 15, as I looked at living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome. And all four rims were full of eyes all around. Wheels that intersect wheels so that God's glory can go in any direction it wants to. Why is there this emphasis on, on movement? Remember, if you were an Israelite at this time, you would have thought that the glory of God was to be found in one place only, in the temple in Jerusalem. And you know what was so shocking about this vision for the original hearers? It wasn't what Ezekiel saw. It's where he saw it. Why is God's glory in Babylon? God's glory is meant to be in the temple back in Jerusalem. What is God doing in exile with his people? In fact, the description of the chariot here is, is described almost like a mobile temple. The, the way that the four creatures are positioned, they have their wings stretched out with the tips touching each other and they kind of form a, a square shape together. You know that in the temple in Jerusalem, the most holy place where the glory of God was said to reside was a square shape. And in that holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you've read your Old Testament or if you've seen Indiana Jones, you'll know what the Ark of the Covenant looked like. It was a gold chest that had two cherubim with their wings touching each other. And all of this was symbolic of God's presence. But Ezekiel's vision is telling us that his presence was not confined to that one place. It's mobile. These great and awesome wheels, they show his omnipresence. And the eyes all around the wheels, what do they show? His omniscience. He sees all things. There is nowhere that he cannot be and there is nothing that he cannot see. That's what these wheels symbolize. And this is huge because, you know, if you had asked Ezekiel, is God with you? Do you know what he would have said? No. God's back in Jerusalem, in the temple. And then what would have happened when God's temple was destroyed? Well, all hope would have been lost. Where's the glory? The last connecting point between God and man would have been broken. But in this vision, Ezekiel sees that's not the case. God has gone into exile with his people. God's glory is right there with Ezekiel by the banks of the Kebar Canal. Do you notice where it comes from? Just another little detail, verse 4. Where does the glory of God come from? Not the south where Jerusalem is, but the north. God is not hindered by circumstance or geography. Israel had forgotten that. 
Again, this, this vision is to enlarge our understanding of God. And so Christ, the radiance of God's glory, reminds us that he is not hindered by circumstance or geography. What does he say to his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel when he sends them out on mission? Behold, I am with you always, right up until the very end of the age. He is with us now by his Holy Spirit, that same spirit that moves the chariot throne of God. He is with us now. And because we have been forgiven by Jesus, we are God's temple. See, when Jesus saves you, he keeps you. He does not abandon you. When he gets you, he cannot lose you. This is the God who is with us always. This is Emmanuel. Do you know that in New Testament, quite often when the apostles um, think about how to illustrate what it's like to be a Christian, they use the language of exile from the Old Testament. So they speak of Christians as being like exiles in Babylon. Just as as they were away from home, we too know that we are away from our heavenly home. We are made to be with God in his glory. And so this world, it's great, but that's not our home. And there are moments that we're reminded of that and sickness or hurt or death or our own sinful nature. And sometimes it can feel very isolating being a Christian. But when we see God's glory, we are reminded that he is there and he is not absent. And he is with us. Jesus does not abandon ever those whom he died to get. There is no place where he is not. But again, there's, there's a note of warning with this. See, the comfort for the Christian is that God does not leave them. But you need to realize, and this is what the rebellious people at the time of Ezekiel needed to realize, you cannot escape from God. As one author says, there is no refuge from the king, only in the king. Final thing to pick up on this great vision is just the majesty of God. There's a beauty in this vision. Ezekiel uses lots of language to try and get us to see how how beautiful the creator is. I mean, it's just so breathtaking. Everything about this vision comes in a kind of cacophony of audible and visual brilliance. The chariot of God, it it comes in on a thunderstorm. Verse 4, there's an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. I don't know if you've ever been in a thunderstorm where you you, you see the the flash of lightning and you count the seconds till you hear the the deep rumble of, of thunder and the closer it gets, the more terrifying it gets. The majesty of God is terrifying. There's fire everywhere. It's mesmerizing, yet yet it's dangerous. And there's these great wheels. They sparkle like chrysolite, which is a a kind of beautiful um, pink precious stone. Or there's the expanse that the creatures are holding up, that the throne's on. How does Ezekiel describe the expanse? In verse 22, it's sparkling like a crystal. It's awesome. Like frost and ice, brilliantly sparkling like a diamond. There's the throne itself that that looks like sapphire. 
There's just this beauty that surrounds God. Verse 28, like the appearance of a rainbow and the clouds of a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. And it wasn't just visual, it was noisy. Verse 24, I heard the sound of the creature's wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. I don't know if you've ever been to Niagara Falls in North America where you go to, there's a little lookout down near the base and you can stand there and you can barely hear each other speaking because the noise is so overwhelming. Or you can imagine the sound of a massive army as hundreds of thousands of soldiers march in unison, a sound that Ezekiel and his exiles knew all too well. You see how this is stretching our understanding of God. The beauty, the majesty, the power of God is to use Ezekiel's words, awesome. That's really the only time you can use that word appropriately in this vision. Think of great moments of beauty in creation like the valleys of Glencoe in spring or if you've ever been anywhere like the Alps or Victoria Falls or if you've ever seen the northern lights, that experience of wonder is a tiny, muddy, pale reflection of what Ezekiel saw in the Creator. To see this would be unbelievable. Psalm 27, David says, Oh, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord always so that I could gaze upon His beauty. And that beauty and that splendor was magnified in Christ, the radiance of God's glory. And I don't mean physically. We, we don't know what Jesus looked like apart from the fact that it was just very ordinary and unimpressive. But it's his character that's unimaginably beautiful. It's his grace. It's his truth. If you're a follower of Jesus, there is something about him that is just so captivating. You just, like, you want more. It's not just about obeying a king, but it's been captivated by the creator. Everything that is wonderful in creation is sourced in Christ the creator. His majesty, his power, and his beauty is overwhelming. And we want to be with him. We want to see him in his glory. And that is what Jesus died to give us. We're out of time, but I really want to draw your attention to one final point. And really, all that's just to set up this point in the whole book of Ezekiel. This vision of greatness is there to set up what happens at the end of verse 28. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Do you know what's so amazing about this God? He speaks. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Look how many times the verb speak is used here. Son of man, stand up on your feet. I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. This, this great God, you know, there is a mystery to God that we must have because he is so infinitely great and we are so finite and frail and sinful. But don't confuse that with a lack of clarity. This great God wants to be known. He tells Ezekiel, go and tell. And he knows that even though he's going to speak to these people, they will continue to rebel against them. 
But he still speaks because whilst people's sin might be stubborn, the word of God is more stubborn and more persistent. And he will keep speaking and keep making himself known. Do you notice that he calls Ezekiel there son of man? You know, in in the Hebrew, a, a better translation of that would be human being. In other words, remember who you are, Ezekiel. Mere human. Remember who I am, the glorious God. Be amazed that I am speaking to you and to these people that don't want to listen to me. And so we can hear his voice. As we read through Ezekiel, we hear the voice of the glorious God. But as Hebrews 1 reminds us, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And so what better way for God to speak to humanity than to become a human being? This great and awesome God becomes like one of us. And that's why the Apostle John says something that was so mind-blowing. Jesus, the Word, became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And we have seen his glory. There's no vagueness. There's no appearance or likeness. We've seen God's glory. So this is an invitation to know him. As we look at Ezekiel, are you bored with God? Are you cold to the gospel? Do you have no heart for evangelism? Do you feel abandoned by him? If you are, the problem is that you've lost sight of his glory. And the only way to recapture that is to listen to his word. Make a real effort this week to to listen to God by reading his Bible and asking yourself, what does this tell me about Jesus? God's inviting us to see his glory. And when you read his word and you see his son leap off the pages of scripture, then you will begin to experience it. Then the only response is to do what? Ezekiel does here and fall down and worship. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are there and you are not silent, that you are not hidden. There's such a greatness to who you are. It's a mystery because you are infinite. There's a beauty because all that we consider beautiful is sourced in you. You have a supreme authority over all things as the the great king who rides on the cherubim. You are wonderful in holiness and majesty. There is no place where you cannot go and there is nothing that you cannot see. Father, help us not to tame you, to limit you. Help us not to view you as just someone who's there to assist us. But may we be humbled by your glory. May we see your glory. And we can see it because you have made it so clear to us through your Son. So help us to read your word, to see Jesus, to listen to what you are saying. As we look through Ezekiel, Father, over these weeks, we pray that we would indeed be humbled by your greatness. Father, we need to be challenged on so many things. We pray that you would challenge us, but also that you would comfort us with the comfort that Ezekiel and the exiles needed to know that they were not abandoned, that you went with them into exile, to know those great promises of hope, promises which we are now standing in the middle of, that we have 
May we be awed by your majesty. May we be afraid of your judgment. May we marvel at your grace. May we see your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to finish by singing a very appropriate hymn, um, Behold Our God. Let's stand and sing this as the band begin to play, and then please do remain standing for the closing benediction.